Welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving in. Hello, Lou. Hello. Hello, divers. Welcome to conversation number 56. Yes. Gosh, it's so great to be recording this episode. It is. Good Um, to be back. It's so good to be back. It's so fun. Today we're going to cover the new releases of some of our favourite writers. And the books that I read were both very much anticipated and I loved them both. So I'm really looking forward to talking about them. Ditto. So today we're sitting uh, in um, my dining room with a... A very impressive pillow fort. Yes. <laughs> we've used every cushion in our house <laughs> to uh, help with the acoustics. And we've got uh, cappuccinos, toasted muffins and uh, chocolate digestive biscuits to help us on our way. So we hope you'll make a cup of tea and join us for a conversation about some of these new releases. I actually, when we were deciding, we, we sort of decided that all our favourite authors were, were releasing books. Yes. And I thought, oh, I'll get, I'll get them all out. And I'd ordered a few and so I made a stack. And it is quite the stack. Like everyone yes. released. Well, it's new release season anyway, season. isn't it? And then- so it's just like book lover heaven. Mm. So I had, and these are the ones we haven't chosen. So there's Ian McEwan's yep. new one. There's Elizabeth Strout. Yes. Chris Hammer. Mm. Uh, his looks really good. Richard Osman. Mm. I've just started oh, that one. I've it's read delightful. That. I've read it. It's fabulous. Yeah, gorgeous. There is a new S.J. Bennett one on who did oh, the three-dog oh, problem and the oh queen. My God, I didn't know so that. So that's extremely timely. I've ordered that. It hasn't arrived yet. John Boyne has done oh, a, okay. a sequel to The Boy in the Striped oh, Pyjamas, wow. you know, many years later yes. apparently. I can't wait to read that. Dana Reed has done one. She's the one that did the one about the college can't remember the name of the other one. The new one's called Seeing Other People. Oh, is that the hard where they went for the reunion? Yeah. Okay. Gosh, reunion it seems to yep. be the theme du jour. No, I don't know. It wasn't the, the reunion. It was the one where she went to a residential college. Mm, don't remember there that were, one. There were guys in the male residential college. And oh, oh yes, uh, Love and Virtue. Love and Virtue. I can't wait yep. to read that. Yes, yes. So Diana Reed. Diana Reed. Sorry, Diana, Diana Reed. Reed. Yes, yes. And well, I've got it upstairs, oh, so fabulous. I'll lend that to you yes. when, I, when I read it. And she's also, great. She is. She writes beautifully. Mm. And also Andrew Greer, who wrote the ah, yes. book about Les, who went off on his frolic to avoid yes, his, right. his ex's wedding. Yeah, he's releasing a new one. I've also ordered that one. And these guys are all auto-buys for me. Mm. <laughs> and they they must all be on the same cycle. Or the, because <laughs> maybe the publishers just say, sit on that, we'll bring it out in. Yeah, maybe, yes, because I guess there's a, sort of a publicity frenzy. But, I, yeah. I, yeah, I look, I... I don't know why they don't spread it over a year. It's a lot of work to do for yeah. one month anyway. Having come just come back from holiday, and um, we were staying very close to Daunt Books, around the corner oh. from Daunt Books in Marylebone, I we just walked into Daunt Books and just thought, I could literally buy 40 books. Mm. I didn't. Mm. You'll be pleased to know. I, yeah, I can relate to that. But the thing is, when, when you've got 
such a big group that are all on autobike, you just can't not buy their books. Yes. So it's just a terrible problem. <laughs> so did you want to kick off with your I will. first one? My first book, which I could not be more excited to talk about, is Maggie O'Farrell's The Marriage Portrait. I'm acutely aware that because this is such a new release and many of you will have it on your book pile, um, I don't want to spoil your experience at all. So I hope some of you will reach out to us, message us on Instagram, because I really would like to tic-tac with people about this book in greater detail. And the other point to make with spoilers with this book is that it's a very interior portrait of of a young woman over a short period of time. And her world is quite confined in many ways. So pretty much everything is a spoiler. Okay. Um, So I'm going to walk through my review on my tippy toes. Okay. So the marriage portrait is Maggie O'Farrell at her sparkling Hamnet best. So she's placed a real-life historical character, Lucrezia de' Medici, at the epicentre of her book, a woman, or rather she's a young girl, who, like Anne Hathaway, was deeply significant to her family, but to the world around her in, you know, the 16th century Renaissance, she's merely a bit player and she's fairly insignificant, not just because of her gender, but because of her circumstances. And of course, there were significant women in the in the Renaissance, but simply because of her personal circumstances. And if you were to Google Lucrezia, you'd find many of them amongst the sort of Italian ducal and ruling families. And so it's a bit confusing. But this Lucrezia was born in 1544. Her full title was Lucrezia di Cosimo de' Medici because her father was Cosimo de' de Medici. And her mother was the Spanish Eleonora, um, who was the daughter of the Viceroy of Naples because at that, that time Naples and Sicily were under Spanish rule. And from what I've read, the influence of the Medici's family or dynasty, some people might think, as rulers in Tuscany, kind of waxed and waned over the years. It reached great heights. They produced two popes. Of course, Catherine de' Medici became Queen of France. So Catherine de' Medici is Lucrezia's great aunt. Uh That's sort of putting that in context. And and certainly the, the marriage of Lucrezia's parents, Cosimo and Eleanor, reinvigorated the influence of the Medicis in Tuscany. And Cosimo eventually became the Grand Duke of Tuscany. Uh, I think he was known as Cosimo I. They had 11 children, of which Lucrezia was the fifth, and she was one of three girls, both of whom were older than her. And sadly, we know, of course, in this period and plenty of others since, the usefulness of daughters to a man like Cosimo is essentially strategic. Mm. I'm sure he loved his children, but he's definitely preoccupied with how to make a strategic match that will benefit and empower his kingdom. Uh, So, you know, daughters were prizes in many respects. And I suppose for some women in the Renaissance, that's an easy role or status to accept, depending on your temperament. Yeah. We have little information to go on about the historical account of Lucrezia, but we do know that at age 15, she became the wife of Alfonso de Este, who was the Duke of Ferrara. And Ferrara, Ferrara being Eric Newby's Apennine Mountains, okay. beyond the Apennine Mountains, further north from Tuscany. Right. And Alfonso had previously been betrothed to one of Lucrezia's older sisters, Maria, but it's Lucrezia who marries him in 1560. And what we also know, and this isn't a spoiler, because it's in all the publicity and it's in the historical note, which is right at the front of the book, is that within a year, Lucrezia was dead. 
Oh, okay. And indeed, within the first three pages of the book, Lucrezia reveals to us that she suspects her husband is shortly to have her killed. Right. Uh, And then the book reverts back and starts with her childhood. So this is sort of a really exquisite fictional reimagining of Lucrezia as a child initially, and then it moves very quickly to the first 12 months of her marriage. She's known affectionately to her parents and siblings as Lucre, and O'Farrell has credited a poem that Robert Browning wrote in 1842, which is called My Last Duchess, as her inspiration for the story. Because, as I said, other than the historical facts I've given you, which are on the record, there's not a lot to go on. And the poem was said to be... uh, Is that the one that starts, that's my last duchess hanging on the wall? Yes, correct. So that poem is said to be Alfonso, the Duke of Ferrara's voice. He's speaking to a third person about his wife's portrait on the wall. And what I would suggest is don't read that poem until you have read the book. Right, okay. So so read the poem Mm. after you've Mm. read the book. Okay. So the first part of the book is when she's much younger. It's really interesting because, of course, we learn about her parents' marriage, their match, how that came about. We learn about how high-born families like Lucrezia's, you know, how their households operate, their relationships with their parents, their servants, the sort of societal rules and expectations, and really how the children's lives are mapped out for them from the day that they're born. And and quite unusually, this is a historical fact, Lucrezia and her two sisters received an education. And the book is written in what is called close third person, and I've actually kept away from it, but there's been a lot of criticism of this, of Maggie O'Farrell for doing this. And, in fact, there's criticism of this particularly in the context of historical fiction. I believe Hilary Mantel also writes in this close first person. So it's it's basically third person, but it's in the present tense. So it's not Lucrezia's voice, but you're alongside her the whole time and you experience her feelings. So you're with her as if it's the present day. You're alongside her the whole time and you experience her feelings and her observations of her family. I think the genius of O'Farrell is is just the way she shapes Lucrezia's personality and her psychology. Um, she's a child of very strong feelings and passions. She's highly creative with a very vivid imagination, quite unlike her older siblings. Wow. Uh, there's a gap of two years between her and her older siblings and between her and her younger oh. siblings. And I don't know if that's true. I must admit I haven't looked at the timeline of the 11 children. I must go back and do that. But it definitely creates the impression that Lucrezia is quite alone. Yeah. And I won't say any more about that. So when she's 12, uh, her father commences negotiations to discuss her marriage and her deal is struck. And three years later, she's married to Alfonso, Duke of Ferrara. He's 27 and he's he's been off fighting and he comes back, which is why the marriage was delayed, thank God although certainly not enough, and he's recently become the Duke because I think his father has died. And uh, he's facing domestic challenges in his dukedom, which Maggie O'Farrell has definitely drawn from history. And because of the revelation at the very beginning of the book, you are on tenterhooks. Mm. I I had a sense of anxiety (laughs) throughout this entire book. I just could not shift it. Um, you're very much aware of the imbalance of power between a young girl 15. and other people in her life, her naivety, and just generally, you know, even in these very rich families who obviously have lots of servants and other people around them, just what a brutal and cruel life it can be for so many people in this era. 
Maggie O'Farrell's prose is really easy to read, as we know. It just glides on the page. And for me, reading it in the present tense just served to make the book very dramatic and sort of almost hyper-real. I have to say a couple of times it was a little bit too manic for me right. and I needed to put the book down and have a little bit of a break mm, and then go, then go back to, you know, Lucrezia. Oh. There's lots of symbols and totems. Animals hold a very significant place in Lucrezia's heart, bless her soul. And for me, perhaps not so subtle symbol that perhaps Lucrezia is herself a bit of a caged animal. But anyway, that's just, oh. that's just a throwaway thought on my part. And obviously the book is called The Marriage Portrait. So portraits and painting, you know, have a number of different um, meanings in the, in the book. Maggie O'Farrell has imagined a Lucrezia for whom art and drawing is very important. I'm not going to say any more about that. But self-evidently, this is a literal portrait of her short marriage. But portraiture also has always been a way for families to demonstrate power and stature and, I guess, also homage to to certain things. Also a way to objectify their possessions, which may or may not be people in their lives, Mm -hmm. have them on show, uh, their spouses, their children, their stature, but also to to influence how people perceived them. I mean, how many times have you stood in a museum in front of an oil painting and just imagined the story behind the person and all the hidden things that were often put into paintings? In the background there's a little house and a garden. And and, and there might be some significance to the jewellery or to the way they're holding their hands. or (laughs) The ring. Yeah, yeah. there's just something. So in this story, Alfonso actually commissions a portrait of Lucrezia which becomes very significant to the storyline. Again, oh. not going to say anything oh, about that. Gosh. There is, in fact, a portrait of Lucrezia in existence by a notable Renaissance painter, Branzino. And Branzino was very well-known painter of Florentine portraits at the, this time. But in, in actual fact, that painting was commissioned for Lucrezia's brother, Francesco, just before she left to marry Alfonso. He was her favourite brother. But it was also to help with the alliance alliance with the Ferrara family. Right. And that painting is, of all places, in the Art Gallery of North Carolina. Gosh. Um, but it's worth looking up. And it's a beautiful painting. She's got quite a solemn face. She's very richly dressed and the family jewellery. It is not the painting that Alfonso commissioned. That is just a fictional okay. fictional book. So that's The Marriage Portrait by Maggie O'Farrell. Oh, Highly recommended. It's got to read fabulous. It. Oh, fabulous. I've got that one upstairs. So that will be one of my um, next next on the list, I think. What's your first? The first one I'll talk about is the new Kate Atkinson. Ooh. It's called Shrines of Gaiety. A I great just title. adore Kate Atkinson. Mm. I've read every single thing she's ever read. The first book I ever read was behind the scenes at the museum and it's still one of my favorite Mm. books ever because of all the little clues lots of little clues in there that just make it a joy and a delight I just loved it and this is similar she does love giving you little clues and having a bit of a game with the reader it's just a lot of fun her writing is just so assured and witty and polished and you just know that you're in the hands of someone who's going to take you on a great Mm. ride. So this book spans a few weeks in 1926 in London and it focuses on the nightlife and in particular the world of the queen of that nightlife, 
Nellie Coker. Mm. And there's a play on that surname, which is very Dickens. And Nellie runs several nightclubs, quite a big mm. fleet of, if you, I don't know what the, what the plural is, but a large number of nightclubs. And they all have different themes. There's an Egyptian one where you go down mm. and it's like Tutankhamun's tomb because that's about the time that Howard Carter mm. discovered it. There's some that are just for ladies. There are some that do serve food and some that don't, some that have a band. You know, they're all completely different. And she has also has several children, that most of whom are adults, and they're all very involved in the family yeah. business. Okay. And each child is sort of responsible for one, one of the nightclubs. There's a lot of corruption, especially police corruption at the time, and there are plenty of deaths. Ooh. And I'll just read a little excerpt from the inside cover because I think this gives you a bit of a flavour of it. The filthy, glittering underbelly of London was concentrated in its nightclubs and particularly the amethyst, the gaudy jewel at the heart of Soho's nightlife. It was not the moral delinquency, the dancing, the drinking, not even the drugs that dismayed Frobisher. It was the girls. Girls were disappearing in London. Oh. At least five he knew about had vanished over the last few weeks. Where did they go? He suspected that they went in through the doors of the Soho clubs and never came oh, out again. Oh, I can't wait to read this. <laughs> oh, Yeah, so that sort of gives you an idea oh. of what it's about. So it's very cleverly crafted, this book. I really loved it. It felt as though the first chapter, you're starting at the outskirts of a tight spiral and you go round oh, and round and round wow. and round into the middle and... There are sort of several disparate characters around that spiral. That you gather. Uh, that you gather as you go. So each chapter you pick up a new character and they seem completely unconnected other than the fact that they're all living in London at the same time. And then as the book progresses, the circle or the spiral curls ever inward and you pick up the threads and the connections between the characters and then it all comes together in the middle. It's really clever. Oh. So it's sort of a mystery in that there are these several young girls having gone missing and Frobisher is the new head of the Bow Street police station. He's quite a bit of a sad character. He's got a tricky wife and, and difficult marriage and he is determined to find out who is responsible for these missing girls and why. And he's got Nellie Coker in his sights. She in the very opening chapter, is just coming out of prison. This will be a bit of a theme for me in this oh. podcast, <laughs> things I talk about, people coming out of prison. She's just coming out of prison. She's done a stint in prison. I think it was for breaching the liquor licensing mm. laws. There'd been a police raid. I actually can't remember exactly what she'd been charged with, but it had not been a happy visit to prison. She's, she's getting on a bit. She's probably in her late 50s. And it's not great for her. <laughs> well, in, in getting on a bit. Yep, I'm getting on a bit. <laughs> oh, Lord. I like to remind you of your age. Too. 1926. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, so we'll say that ladies in their late 50s in 1926. <laughs> She's possibly even in her 60s. Well, it's just, but it did, it did not do her health any good. And I have to say, if I went to prison, it wouldn't do my health any no, good. that's true. That's true. It's a different oh. era. It's a different <laughs> era. So funny. So Frobisher believes that Nellie and her clubs are connected in some way to these missing girls. And the chapters sort of move around from Nellie and her various children. You, you get in the heads of some of the children. 
and then you're in the head of Frobisher in some chapters, and then you're also in the head sometimes of a couple of young girls who have run away from home in the country mm. and come to London because they want to be stars. Oh. Yeah. So at first it appears that they've got nothing in common, but gradually there's all these little breadcrumbs that, that drop. And Nellie Coker is this fabulously rich and, and well-drawn character. She, we're given a, quite a lot of detail about her backstory. It's, it's really well done how she sort of pulled herself up by her bootstraps. And it turns out that Kate Atkinson actually based Nellie on a real person. It was a lady named Kate Mayrick mm. who did run several London nightclubs and she had even more children than Nellie. And the title of the book, Shrines of Gaiety, comes from an obituary for Kate Mayrick. Oh, wow. That is actually included in the back of the book. Oh. And there's, a, you know, obviously a bit of judgment in there about mm. what's going on in Kate Mayrick's nightclubs, these shrines of gaiety. So it's rather nice to sort of, I, I didn't know that when I was reading it, but it's sort of a nice way to finish up the mm. book to realise that, because she just felt so real. Yes. I thought this could easily be a real person, which is testament to Kate Atkinson's writing, I suppose. The other thing that's fabulous is Kate Atkinson's attention to detail in the 1920s London. It's just so spot on. You know, the clothes, the food, the cars, the language, the lion's corner houses, which, you know, were Nigella Lawson's maternal forebears. The price of everything feels very authentic. So the whole thing has a really authentic feel, which I really loved. And it's been quite a while since Kate Atkinson's last book. Not sure exactly what the gap is, but this was just a real treat because I thought she wasn't going to write anymore. She's often compared with Dickens, and I can see why, because she has some utterly ghastly characters. You know, there are scenes in the morgue. There's a man whose job it is is to stand with this enormous long hook and pull bodies out of the Thames as they flow past. Oh, my goodness, there's all sorts of elements that make up the soup, you know, that is London of 1926. That sounds fabulous, Jenny. So the resolution is really well done at the end as you end up right in the middle of the spiral and it was just a joy to be in this world. I I felt sad when I had finished it. I'm moving that up my pile. It's in my pile. It was so good. I'm moving it up. Yeah. Fabulous. So that was Shrines of Gaiety Mm. by Kate Atkinson. Fabulous. Yeah. Fabulous. What was your other one, Lou? Uh, Well, as you might expect, it would be some crime fiction and it was just a really good, easy holiday read. So I read Anne Cleave's The Rising Tide and as many of you crime fiction aficionados and murderinos know, she's the creator of the detective inspector Vera Stanhope. And more recently, Detective Inspector Matthew Venn, who was the protagonist in the first of uh, the Cleve series I reviewed last year, mm-hmm. um, Two Rivers, which was set in Devon. So when I picked this one up, I was away and I was expecting it to be the second in the Matthew Venn series. I, I didn't even read it, the back of it. Yeah, I just thought, oh, yeah. great, new Anne Cleves. Yeah, yeah. Took it back to my hotel. And it's not. It's oh. her 10th Vera novel and it's a cracker. Uh, I gifted it to a friend actually and I so I read it very quickly uh, while I was away, gifted it to a friend so I didn't have to bring it back. But then when I decided to review it today, I thought I'm going to listen to it on Audible because I have an Audible credit, which is a bit extravagant, but I use one of my Audible credits. And I listened to the audio, which I can highly recommend ah. because the actress who is voicing Vera is superb. 
it, like full Geordie accent. It felt like I had the TV on in the background. Gosh. And of course, Vera in the books is more gritty and also more vulnerable, I think, than the TV series. And, and this new one is no exception, and I loved it. All of the Vera books take place in Northumberland, the northeast coast of England, and Rising Tide is set on Linda's Farm also known as Holy Island, and that's a tidal island which you can drive across a causeway to reach apart from two periods in sort of 24 hours where the tides are too high. So the story surrounds a group of friends who have gathered on uh, Holy Island every five years since they first visited the island on a school team-building retreat as teenagers, and they're now all in their 60s. Gosh. And they always come back to the same place to stay, Pilgrim House. And originally there were six of them, but one of them, Isabel, drowned during that first visit as teenagers. And the remaining five are Rick, who's a high-profile journalist. He's beginning to have a bit of, he's sort of falling out of public favour for reasons I won't mention. There's a couple, Louise and Ken, Uh, Louise is Isabel's older sister and Ken now appears to be developing dementia. And Philip, who who had been the most outgoing and rebellious of the group as teenagers, he is a priest. And Anna, divorced from Daniel, she owns a gorgeous delicatessen on the mainland. So that's sort of the group. And they've been coming together for so long and, of course, after 50 years, as you'd expect, they have a lifetime of personal experiences, highs, lows, relationships and baggage. And so after a night of drinking and catching up, they wake on the first morning to find that one of them has died. And Vera Stanhope and her team are called in. Oh, my gosh, that sounds so Um, So when I say easy to read, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. They're effortless reading her books. And the landscape is always very present in Anne Cleve's novels. And, you know, Northumberland is beautiful, but of course, in a very dramatic and at times bleak way. And it's always hostage to the weather. And so you have that sort of background, but then added to that fact is the sort of slight unease by the fact that the tide is rising Mm. and that people often try and beat the tide when they're driving yes. to and from the mainland. I think what Anne Cleves does really well is the red herrings. She plants so many of them. I don't know if it's just that I always read a crime book trying to work out, thinking I, thinking I can yeah. get ahead of the story. But, you know, her red herrings are subtle and clever and the fact that this group has known each other for so long means there are so many layers and empty spaces in the narrative that, you know, you... You don't feel like you're being drip-fed. And she sort of builds the narrative and characters' storylines in a way that makes them very sort of substantial police procedurals. You know, wow. There's lots of detail. And you feel the rigour in the investigation without suspecting too much of the reveal until the very end. Wow. I also, what I also really like about her books, and this one in particular, is the way she builds her minor characters principally her sidekicks. So she's got her Sergeant Joe, who people will be very familiar with because he's been around for a while and his relationship with Vera is very easy and familiar and he's a sergeant. And then she has a Constable Holly who's been around for a couple of books and uh, she's less certain of her place in the team and what Vera thinks of her, but she's actually quite like Vera and she's very ambitious and she's very capable. Is Kenny in there? Uh, well, he, he wasn't in this book. Okay. He wasn't in this book. But, yeah, he's in the yeah. all the TV. He wasn't in this. Okay. It was just Holly and Joe. Right. 
I don't know how she manages it, with, but with, in a very short period of time she builds those minor characters mm. really well. And she isn't sentimental at all, so she doesn't shield the reader at all from the human flaws in, in these characters, in, the, in our favourite characters actually. And I always think she likes to deliver a soccer punch, which she did yeah. in this book. Wow. So thoroughly enjoyable oh, holiday read. Go and buy that one. The Rising Tide by We've Anne been watching, um, I think it's series three. We we just went through and I said, oh, let's just check whether we've seen, because there are odd seasons that you just miss and we hadn't watched any of them. It's only got three or four in it. But, oh, my God, I love Vera. I just, yeah, I do too. She's a great character. Yeah, so fun, fantastic. My uh, second book is also a crime book. Mm. It's the new Jane Harper. Oh, Dingo Noir. Uh, yes, it's Exiles. I don't know whether I'd, this is sort of Vineyard Noir. Oh, is it Vineyard Noir? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so this is her fifth book. I absolutely loved it. Aaron Fork, the back, main is character, is back. And also some of the characters from her first book, The Dry, are back. Sergeant, oh, okay. Sergeant Rayco and his wife, Rita. He was the local policeman. Yes. And so this one is set in South Australian wine country. And Jane Harper's another one of those authors that just writes in a way that you know she has complete mastery of yes. the story. And this also has an element of working outside in a spiral and going in. Mm. You know, sometimes some things are... I don't know, the way, the architecture always interests me with this. And How they build it. Yeah, just all the little breadcrumbs as you sort of get to the to the centre of the story. And were you thinking of Eric Banner as you were as you I were reading it or actually, not? I didn't because to me Aaron Falk is blonde. Oh, okay. He was blonde in the, the book. First book, so yes. I'm, oh. I've got that stuck in my head. Yeah, sort of, that's good. Yeah. That's good that you're yeah. not. So this one opens with a prologue and it's, it's similar to The Dry in that there's a baby in a pram, not not in a oh. cop this time. Well, that must be quite deliberate that she's done I that. I don't know. I, I did think, oh, gosh. So this is a baby found asleep in a pram and it's at the local Marilee Valley Annual Food and Wine Festival and it becomes apparent that her mother, Kim Gillespie, is missing. So this little baby's in a pram where everyone's allowed to store their prams in a certain spot and mother is nowhere. And then the actual book starts... A year later, the baby's now one and Aaron Fork has driven into town. He's going to be the godfather at the christening of Rayco and Rita's son. The christening was meant to happen a year before. Uh, had it had all been organised for the year earlier, but it had been postponed because of the disappearance of, of Kim Gillespie and all the drama around that. So they're back a year later to have the christening and they're also going to hold an appeal at the Food and Wine Festival to see if they can jolt any memories and try and find out what happened to Kim Gillespie. The missing woman, Kim, also had a teenage daughter as well as this little baby. And the teenage daughter is sort of the one running this appeal. She's had stacks and stacks of brochures printed and she's press-ganged all her family and friends into handing out these brochures with Kim Gillespie's face on them. And asking people, you know, if they remember anything, were they here last year? Just trying to see whether there's some detail that might have been missed. There's a fabulous policeman, you know, the local cop who is both lazy and inept. Fabulous. You know, and he's all the things. And he's just seems to be incapable of solving this missing person's case or indeed a case from seven years mm. ago when another person in the town was murdered and later found in the local dam. 
So this is a small town where everyone knows everyone and everyone went to school together. So some of the relationships go back a long way. And Aaron Falk, of course, is the star. Mm. Um, He has a week's holiday booked from his federal police job. So he's got a bit of time to hang out among the vineyards and knows his way around and see what he can find out. I thought it was really good. There were a couple of tiny things in the plotting that were a bit clunky to me at the end, but overall I thought it was, you know, like 99% of it was excellent. It's got a really good ending or maybe multiple endings, I I suppose. I could easily see it being made into a film or a TV uh, series because the vineyards would be beautiful and the sun setting over the vineyards. It's just very beautiful. And then there's also this gorgeous food and wine festival that runs for a few days. And you can imagine that making the most beautiful visual feast, you know, and a fabulous background. I wonder whether, you know, a publisher might (laughs) might say to Jane Harper. Have you thought of doing a food and wine festival? Or or, or more, have you thought of doing a sequel? Yeah. A sequel. Yeah, I'm sure they do. I'm sure they sit down with her and try and. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I just, because you just think, because it was a very successful movie. Yeah. It did very well. I wouldn't call this a sequel. I, I mean, it's really just the characters come back yes. and there's really not there's a one, one of the things that's a bit clunky is a sort of a bit of a catch-up of what's been happening back in yes. the town in the first one I didn't think that was no. really necessary and it's interesting though that she has but yeah we are revisiting not just him we're revisiting yeah, yeah, other characters yeah. as well so yeah, yeah look, interesting yeah, yeah. so I, I thought it was excellent and I, I obviously can't say too much about the details no, of it but it's, it's hard with crime books, really good really? so that was Exiles by Jane Harper excellent yeah so what else have you been diving into lately, uh, Lou? Well, as you know, <laughs> Lots of I'm things. the reason why we haven't been <laughs> recording because I've been away. I've had a much-loved break with family overseas, some of whom we hadn't seen for a while, so that yeah. was very special. I did happen to be in London when Her Majesty died. So no matter what your views are on monarchy, um, either there or here in Australia, yeah. um, it was an extraordinary time yeah, to be in London. Yeah, just history in the making. It was. The, you know, all the pageantry and hoopla mm. um, and thousands of people flooding into the capital. So it was a really historic moment. Yeah. And then the first afternoon that Westminster Hall opened to observe the Queen lying in state, that was 5pm on a Friday, I was out at the theatre that night with a friend and we decided to join the queue on a whim, which was just, you know, it's an experience I'll never forget, not just actually eventually, you know, joining the queue at 10.30 and then seeing Her Majesty at 7am. It was more the sort of talking with all the people around us, you know, having nine hours with a close friend to sort of chat about things that we, you know, we would never have that time normally. And just speaking to people about what had brought them to London, what had brought them to the queue and you know, talking about Australia becoming a republic and views on monarchy. It was really, really fascinating. fascinating. It was yeah. an amazing thing to do. Um, so that brings me to a TV series that I have been watching and I cannot get enough of, which is This England with Kenneth Branagh. Um, it's available currently Foxtel, BBC First here in Australia, but also through Sky Alliance. I'm sure you could probably get it on other streaming services as well. It is this stunning production that puts a magnifying glass over the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic in England. There is a full cast of Downing Street, Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings, Matt Hancock, Michael Gove, and it dramatises all the meetings between the ministers and Boris 
with the health professionals in the UK. For some people, it might be too early to watch this. Too soon. Too soon. (laughs) Kenneth Branagh plays Boris Johnson. You will not recognise. I mean, it it is just extraordinary. He's got full prosthetic Gosh. Uh, and he, he's, he is Boris. Wow. And the actress that plays Carrie, uh, the girlfriend stroke wife, is also just extraordinary as well. It looks like a documentary. Right. The meetings, uh, you know, and the stuff at Downing Street is a little bit lighter, partly because Boris is such a buffoon. Yeah. And Dominic Cummings is very hard-nosed and, you know, the, you'll recognise some of the actors that are the other ministers. But then they... A lot of it, they cut to scenes in hospitals with patients or nursing homes with patients. You you could be watching oh, footage yeah, of hospitals. Okay. It is absolutely oh, yeah. extraordinary. You know, I can't call it a mockumentary because it's not even no. remotely funny, but it, it is like a documentary. Yeah. And I kept Googling. I was trying to find out, were they real doctors and nurses? Was it real footage wow. in hotels, it, in, in hospitals? It is absolutely extraordinary. Wow. You know, obviously, ultimately, the real heroes are the doctors and the nurses and... The scenes of how it impacts the lives of ordinary Britons, it's just extraordinary. It, it's filmed a bit like those 24 hours and emergency yep. type yep. shows. Yep, I can it just picture. It is absolutely brilliant. And Kenneth Branagh is oh, extraordinary. So it's six episodes and we've just oh. had three here. Fabulous. Okay. Just fabulous. The other thing I watched, I binged, was on SBS On Demand, I watched D.I. Ray. It's a uh, four-part police procedural, oh, of course. It. The actress playing D.I. Ray is Paminta Nagra. She was in Bendit Like Beckham yes. and in yes. ER. Yes, and she didn't really get the attention that she didn't. She deserved and after she's amazing. Bendit Like Yeah, she was in ER for a while and yeah. then she seemed to yeah. disappear. Absolutely thrilling. She's a police inspector with absolutely everything stacked against right. her. She's tough. You're rooting for her from start to finish. Few lame moments in the dialogue. Oh, it's a bit cheesy at times, but I loved it. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely loved oh, it. That's D.I. Ray. That sounds great. And then my last recommendation, which I know, Ginny, you are also a huge fan of as well, oh. uh, is the podcast Empire. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely loving it. You may remember, I think in 2020, I reviewed a podcast by a, a British journalist and historian, Anita Anand. She did their podcast, We Need to Talk About the British Empire. It was only six episodes and it was on Audible, which is a bit of a shame because you had to have an Mm. Audible subscription to listen to it. She's now teamed up with William Derimple, who lives in India. He's a historian. Aren't they a great pair? Oh, amazing pair, don't you think? The dynamic between them makes yeah. that podcast. Yeah, and she facilitates him. She's, she's just, very oh, good, she's isn't she? She's just divine. Yeah. And oh, it's only, only been 12 episodes so far. I think the 13th comes out this week, so it's perfectly doable doing all things empire their listeners are pressuring them to remove themselves from india and a particular area yeah. of the world they want them to go yeah. to other areas but it's so it, fascinating it and is, that is their specialty it is their specialty and the sort of east india company but the three episodes i've been enjoying recently are the three episodes that have been following the fate of the Koh-i-Noor yeah. diamond which i know you've listened to oh. as well uh, which of course found its way into the crown of the Queen Consort, the Queen Mother, mm. last seen in England on, on the funeral. When she was lying in when state. When she was lying in state, yep. absolutely. And, of course, recently, as soon as Her Majesty died, there were calls mm. in India mm. immediately for the return mm. of that diamond. But as we've yeah. been talking today, who does it belong to? Well, yes. So I saw one guy saying, you know, this young boy prince gave it away and it wasn't his to give and they should give it back. And so my immediate reaction was, well, of course they should give it back. And then having listened to that podcast, 
I realise it's much more complicated because all the countries think it's theirs. Yes. It's gone everywhere. Yeah. So uh, it's all very well to say give it back, but I wouldn't know who to give it to. No, I wouldn't either. I suspect it just doesn't belong yeah, on the Queen to, Consort's crown. It needs to crown. go in a museum or it's something. It's now going to be Catherine's crown. And I, I, yeah. yeah, and I just, yeah. No, 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 Camilla's, Camilla, Camilla's, Camilla's crown. That's right, yeah. yeah. I, I've heard that she might not wear that one at yes. the coronation. I don't know. But it does which raise a, this very thorny question, which I think has been simmering for the last five years mm. or so, maybe even a little bit more, of repatriation. Yeah of artefacts yep. and significant yep. uh, totems. And every time I walked into a museum, I have to say in the UK, it was on my mind. Yeah, I was yeah. just thinking the provenance of this item. Yep. But, I mean, where would you start, yep. though? And there's where that podcast, would you start? I think I might have mentioned it on this podcast, Stuff the British Stole. Yes. I don't know if I have, actually, but that's quite a good one and that goes into lots yeah. of stuff that's yeah. in the British museums that, you know, shouldn't be there probably, but, yeah. Yeah. I, very tricky because winding it back yeah would be yeah. just be you know and, and what do you say should go back and what doesn't go back yeah. what what are the what are the standards what are the rules yeah and how well will the yeah. recipient yeah. country look after the things and and and, oh and is, it, is it on the basis of how it was removed yeah how, was it stolen yeah. was it taken in a nefarious was it paid way for? was it gifted yeah. was, was it, it stolen gifted? was it scavenged yeah, yeah. Well, oh my lord yeah it's massive it's massive yeah what about you what have you been diving um, into well yes I've been loving that Empire podcast, I must say, that's fabulous. We were watching Sherwood, which was a fantastic series. We streamed that one. Mm. It's set in modern times in an ex-coal mining village near Sherwood Forest. And some of the drone photography over the top of Sherwood Forest Mm. is just so beautiful. And there is quite a a Robin Hood theme running through it, which I loved. It has Leslie Manville... And Incredible she, cast. Yeah, and she's going to be in Mrs Harris Goes to Paris, which I'm looking forward to, and tons of other great British actors that you've seen in oh, yeah. just about everything. And hanging over the village is the memory of the coal strikes in 1972 during Margaret Thatcher's era when everyone remembers which miners went on strike and which ones kept working and were scabs. So the village is very much divided along those lines. Even 50 years later, you know, divided families, people have remained enemies ever since, and they're just as hostile as they were Mm. in the 1970s. And one of the characters is murdered in the first episode and the local policeman has to basically figure out who did it and why, and then other mysteries start to emerge and you realise there's a lot of secrets and Mm. a lot of things hidden in this town and... And there's even the question of people who were police spies. Mm. And I do remember reading about a woman who had discovered that her husband had married her as a police spy. Her whole life had been a a lie. Yes. And I found that hard to believe that it really happened, but it really did. (laughs) And I think what was unusual about Nottinghamshire was that whereas the rest of the North people were on strike, in Nottinghamshire, what was different was that they were work, they went back to work, yeah. and so the people who didn't work were in the minority, and that was the unusual thing it about was. those towns. Yeah, yeah, what an and interesting. Fifty period. years later, they sort of haven't moved on. No, they still see each other as, and you know, and then there's the secrecy. You know, did some people who they thought didn't go back to work 
in fact, get on the bus and go to work and all this. Yeah. It's re- really it's, good. It's very vivid for me because I left to come to Australia when oh, I was 10 Yeah, in that era and my cousin, who was much older than me, my cousin Peter, was a young constable oh, in the south of England wow. and he was sent to the north to be a young policeman during the strikes. Oh, yeah, quite I can extraordinary. just imagine. That's yeah. amazing, Lou. Wow. Yeah, so that, uh, it was just really well done. I really loved it. I thought that was really excellent because you sort of start to suspect everybody mm, of everything yeah. <laughs> and people are not what they see. It's so. beautifully shot. Beautifully yes. shot. Oh, yeah. The British just do everything so well. The other thing I loved, we went to see see How They Run, the movie, which is a great movie if you want something light and upbeat. Mm. It's a spoof based around the Agatha Christie play The Mousetrap. Um, and it has Saoirse Ronan, oh. Ruth Wilson, Adrian Brody. Oh, wow. Tons of other great mm. actors. Shirley Henderson plays Agatha Christie. So it's got this sort of meta element where Agatha Christie is actually a character. Is oh, she in... from Hamish Macbeth? Yes. Oh, wow. And she's such a good actress. Yeah. I, I just adore her. She's She's been in a few things I've seen recently and she's quite versatile and oh, she's wonderful. She she plays this sort of slightly dithery Agatha Christie okay. and it's rather comical and yeah. really good fun. So the whole thing is just a delight. Um, Saoirse Ronan's fantastic and it's basically they've got to find out who committed this murder in connection with the performance of this play. So I'd really recommend You come out of the cinema upbeat, you know. Yeah, you've had that's a, lovely. You've had a good chuckle. Mm. And then the last one I was just going to mention is Savage River, which we watched on ABC Ivy, which is a six-parter, and it stars a Perth actress, Catherine Langford. Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. She just lights up the screen. She's so incredibly beautiful, but but also she's a really great actress. She's just fabulous. This has got Virginia Gay in it. It's got Nadine Garner, Bernard Curry. Jacqueline McKenzie, Leah oh, Vandenberg. Wow. She, Leah Vandenberg was in GP. I don't yep. know if you remember her. Lots of other familiar faces. And the series opens with a very young woman, sort of late teens, early 20s, returning home to a tiny country town after having been in prison for, I think it's about eight years, for the manslaughter of her best friend. And this tiny little country town in Victoria there's a meatworks, an abattoir, and that's the main, if not the only, oh, real employer gosh. in the town. And many of the meat workers are refugees from the nearby refugee centre. And just after this young girl gets off the bus and comes back into town, and let's just say she's not welcomed with open arms, as you can imagine, no. someone goes missing, and then another person goes missing, and then a body oh. turns up. And as you can imagine, suspicion immediately falls on this young girl because she's just come out of prison for killing killing someone and the timing of it is really unfortunate. And so she has to really try quickly to figure out who is the actual murderer before she gets arrested herself because she can see they're coming for her and people are planting things and trying to point to her and it might be that they're trying to point to her out of revenge or a bit trying to be funny or, you know, there are different motives in the town. Oh, and wow. There's, there's some absolute bogans and some absolutely fabulous characters. It's got another great, lazy, inept, possibly corrupt bad cop oh, who's incapable of solving anything. <laughs> this is a theme Which of Which is my... why she needs to do it herself. <laughs> yeah. And then Virginia Gay comes in back from... She was a local. She's gone off to the big smoke and she's 
progress through the ranks as a detective and she is told to come back and solve it it single-handedly, which, you know, does sort of beggar belief. But So she's got to deal with this inept cop who was her mentor when she first started, but she's now much better than him. And so there's a bit of a tension there, which I thought was really well done because she's sort of got to abide by his rules and he does things his way, but she's got to sort of do things her way. She's got to work around him. The architecture of this one's quite different. This is one of those stories where the viewer is only seeing the very tip of the iceberg and then there's just this morass of secrets underneath, including some very old secrets and the connections only just start to emerge, you know, the more you're in it. So it's very well hidden. Very good. Really well hidden. We're looking for a new series to... I I would really recommend this. I I thought it was really compelling. We, a couple of times, said, shall we watch another one and... (laughs) sort of watched two back to back, even though it was getting late. So, uh, which is a good sign, I suppose. It is a very good sign. So those are the books and the screen shows that we've been diving into. We'd love to know if you've read any of the books that we've discussed today. Yes, please and get what in you touch. thought. Do you like waiting for an, a favourite author to release a book or do you worry? You know, there's that often that worry of, Will this new one be any good? I know, that's Will it true. be as, as good, good as the previous one? Especially yeah, especially if your hopes are high. Mm. So let us know. We'd love to know how you find that um, dynamic of, of we, having a favourite. And we're doing another episode of new releases soon. We are. So we'll be back again soon with another bookish conversation, and we'll see you then. Bye now. Bye. We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening, and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too, at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up.